Debussy began his set of orchestral image in 1905. That's just after he completed his masterpiece La Mer, The Sea, a work which manages to be an astonishingly vivid three-movement tone poem and probably the greatest French symphony at the same time. In composing La Mer, Debussy raised his game when it came to technical precision and daring. So does Debussy stride forth with new confidence now? Oh no. It took him seven years to complete the image, and we're talking about a total duration here in most performances of around 35 minutes. So I make that a rate of five minutes per year. OK, Debussy had major distractions, including his second book of image for solo piano, the title much preoccupied him at the time. And also, he was struggling with attempts to complete an opera on Edgar Allan Poe's story, The Fall of the House of Usher, which, alas, he never managed to complete. Just imagine how the composer of this music would have conjured up the eerie, desolate atmosphere surrounding Poe's doomed house and its weirdly fixated occupant. That's the beginning of Gigue, jigs in English, the first of the three orchestral images. The title, as it sounds, refers to the lively, sometimes wild Scots or Irish dance. There's a strong suggestion in this piece of Debussy looking north in his imagination, towards Scotland or the borders, which has strong romantic associations with the once hugely popular novels of Walter Scott, or the largely fictional bard Ossian. Scotland and the English-Scottish borderlands were seen as a region of misty forests and ancient magic. And it's not just the atmosphere. Something local is stirring in that music we've just heard. That melancholy, high-floating flute line at the beginning. A very simple melody with a hint of a dotted rhythm. It's interesting that Debussy originally thought of calling this piece Gigue Triste, Sad Jig, which sounds like a real contradiction in terms. Well, if we follow the development of that idea, we may see how these two seemingly contradictory terms begin to marry up. A little later, that opening idea turns into something much more dance-like on two bassoons, and the idea is quickly taken up by other instruments. Now, does that sound faintly familiar? Debussy was thinking quite specifically of a Northumbrian folk song. This is also an area where jigs were traditionally danced in Debussy's time. The song's called The Keel Row. The 
Lucy doesn't just present the folk song and develop it in Jig. In fact, we never quite hear the song, as in that original version there. We hear the eerie, melancholic foreshadowing on the flute at the beginning, and then gradually the tune begins to emerge, but it still has a kind of nervous, edgy, evasive quality. And when the folk tune nearly emerges in full at the climax, it does so on an instrument associated in Debussy's time with the world of grotesquerie and horror, associations for many of Debussy's audience with Saint-Saëns famous Danse Macabre, where death plays the xylophone. It isn't quite as cultivatedly grotesque here in Debussy, but there's still something eerie about this sound. Climax mounts, the waves seem about to break, and then everything evaporates mysteriously. That's very typical of Debussy, particularly later Debussy, this pulling back at a moment of possible revelation. It's interesting to compare that with the third of Debussy's orchestral image, Rond du Printemps, Spring's Round Dance. I'll explain why we're going on to the third work in the series in a moment or two. The beginning, in some ways, is very like the opening of Gigue. We have atmospheric string figures centred on one sustained note, suggestive rustling sounds on harp, woodwind and horns. It's all full of mysterious potential. There's a suggestion of something more positive at the opening of Rond du Printemps than at the beginning of Gigue. Certainly, there's more of a sense of burgeoning life in those chattering woodwind figures. Yet, if you think this is going to be an easier piece to understand, more clearly joyous than that ambiguous sad Gigue, well, let's consider Debussy's words. The music has this about it, he writes. It is elusive, and consequently cannot be handled like a robust symphony which walks on all fours, sometimes on threes, but walks nevertheless. So, not a robust symphony walking on all fours or threes, but a strange limping dance in five beats to the bar. 
Debussy does give a clue to possible meanings here, as in Gigue. They're ambiguous, dreamlike, and symbolist. And again, as in Gigue, one of the means by which he conveys this sense of double meaning is the use of a folk song. In fact, this folk song is perhaps more helpful than the unequivocally light-hearted quotation at the head of the score. Long live May, welcome May, with his rustic banner. The tune Debussy uses here is a French song he's used before, Nous n'irons pas au bois, We won't go to the woods anymore, The laurels are all cut. The opening phrase sounds like this. The tune manifests itself even more subtly here in Rond du Printemps than the keel row did in Gigue. We first heard an outline of it on the warbling clarinet and flute figures near the start. Then, after the five-in-a-bar dance starts, it emerges a touch more definitively on oboe. And finally... At the climax of Rond du Printemps, the folk tune emerges more sturdily on high trumpet-like woodwinds, a suggestion of rustic piping, with a tambour drumming underneath and dancing strings. Now we're in a clear three in a bar. Surely this isn't ambiguous. This is pure joy. But this kind of robust dancing enjoyment is short-lived. When he was writing Rond in 1909, Debussy discovered the first signs of the cancer that was eventually to kill him. Did that perhaps leave its mark on the music? Maybe or maybe not. We have this ambiguity. On one level, we can feel the returning life, the sun, as in spring. But always there are these moments of doubt. Spring is returning. It's a joyous thought. But one day... It won't be for us. I mentioned earlier about the order of the three orchestral images. They don't really slot together very comfortably. Ronde, number three, makes a very strange finale. In fact, it can sound like a kind of add-on after the third movement of Iberia, which is, now this is getting numerically confusing, the second of the three orchestral images. That does have a magnificently conclusive ending. It's very unusual to hear the three images performed together in a straight sequence as written. It's unusual enough to hear them in one programme, as in tonight's performance. And in analysing them, it makes sense to leave the richest, and in many ways the most extraordinary of these images, to the last. Iberia, that's the French word for Spain. Spain fascinated Debussy, as it did many other French artists in his time. This is the exotic Western European country. Parts of it belonged to the Arabic Empire until the 15th century, and there was a lasting Arabic influence on Spanish culture, architecture, music. There's also that sense of Spain being a kingdom apart, separated from the rest of Europe by the monumental natural barrier of the Pyrenees. Debussy never got across those mountains. He visited England before he wrote Gigue, and of course he knew France. But he'd only spent half a day in Spain in his entire life. He crossed the borders to see a bullfight. Everything else came from his own imagination, distilled from books he's read, music he's heard. In other words, he created a kind of an imaginary Spain, a dream world, which was conveniently protected against incursions from messy reality. 
Yet what he did with Spanish music, and what he did in creating a kind of imaginary Spanish world, the distillation of the atmosphere, you might say, made a huge impression on Spanish composers, especially Manuel de Falla, who really thought that Debussy had got it right. I'd certainly agree with de Falla when we turn to the beginning of Iberia. This tone poem, unlike Ronde and Gigue, is in three movements, the last two linked. And the first movement begins on the highways and byways. It sets the flavour immediately with a characteristic Spanish dance rhythm underlined, of course, with castanets. <laughs> That dance rhythm's already quite interesting, isn't it? One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. The beat shifts slightly. That's very typical of Spanish music. And again, it betrays something of its Arab influences. Syncopation, that's the shifting of the stress to a weak beat, is absolutely typical. And the term syncopation derives from an ancient Greek word for a fainting fit. It's connected with the idea of intoxication, of losing yourself in dance rhythms. It's that kind of dance with an underlying erotic element. Eventually comes the moment when you can really feel the intoxication beginning to work. As we get caught up in this heady, abandoned mood, the world begins to take on a more fantastical aspect. The dance rhythm continues swaying. We have low harps and pulsating strings, and the almost hallucinogenic colours of violins, half-glassy spectral harmonics, half-pizzicato, plucked. Brass may have broken up the mood there, but this isn't the end of the erotic element in Iberia. Oh, dear me, no. The second movement, the slow movement, is one of the most exquisitely sensual nocturnes ever composed. It's called Les Parfums de la Nuit, the perfumes of the night, and it subtly evokes the atmosphere, the mood, even the sense of a Spanish garden during the night. We have the gentle cool after the heat of day, the alluring sound of fountains, the scent of flowers and herbs that release their fragrances only after dark. Spanish gardens are mysterious, even mystical places, and also places of assignation. The sounds Debussy creates are profoundly suggestive. We have a shimmering background of high strings, bit like the beginning of Gigue and Rond du Printemps, but in spirit worlds apart. Listen out for some extraordinary touches of instrumentation, tiny flecks of colour picked out on xylophone and runs on the celeste. It's common to hear these instruments playing high up, but here they're low down and sound highly exotic.
Before long, it seems, we discover the real purpose of entering this world of exquisite nocturnal perfumes. A theme of the first movement reappears, translated into a very Spanish love song, or maybe it should be a seduction song on trumpets. It mounts ecstatically, and then... Through this exquisite, lush sound tapestry of Les Parfums de la Nuit, another, more emotional pattern seems to be emerging here, something very typical of Debussy, whatever world of image he's in. In all these pieces, and especially in this central movement of Iberia, he seems to be on the point of revelation or abandonment. The love song here, the intoxicated dancer in the first movement, the confrontation with something sinister and malicious in Gigue. And then, at the last moment, Debussy always seems to pull us back. As so often happens in dreams, we seem to be on the point of revelation. And then we wake up. And there is a wonderful, masterly portrayal of the actual waking up process from a dream at the end of this second movement. In fact, it's rather interesting. Where exactly is the end of the second movement? Flute and very high bassoon with solo violin seem to be trying to recall the trumpet's love song, interrupted by the distant sound of bells. Then it starts again. Then it's interrupted by much livelier sounds. Is there dance music approaching? And then, well, the sequence goes on, gradually emerging from dreams into waking consciousness.
Now we're clearly in the full blaze of day. We have wild dancing festivities, strings thrumming their instruments there like guitars. But how brilliantly, seamlessly, fabulously the dream of the Spanish night garden lingered as the mind slowly wakes up. Still, there's the after scent of those perfumes, and it takes a moment or two to forget them completely. Debussy is a master at the creation of dream worlds. Today, we tend not to expect that sort of thing in art, do we? Art is often held to be at its best when it reflects gritty reality. Talk of dream worlds is escapist, and we mustn't be escapist, must we? But as T.S. Eliot once remarked, humankind cannot bear very much reality. We also need art to take us away to engage with and enhance our own power to imagine, to dream, to create image for ourselves. And that, conversely, can also give us the strength to endure reality. That kind of art is valid too, and if you're looking for it, Debussy is the master.